What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Lunch with a Leader. If I've never met you before, I'm Mike, and I am beyond honored you took the time to join in today. We are so blessed every episode to sit down with some incredible leaders who are willing to unload their leadership toolbox to help ours get a little more full so we can be the best that we were created to be. And thank you so much for listening in. Man, we couldn't do it. If you weren't listening, it sure wouldn't be any fun. But man, every episode, we have so many people that join in and listen in and leave ratings and reviews. I want to thank Pastor Brad, who said, I'm a senior pastor in Dublin, Georgia. I just ran across this podcast not too long ago. It will encourage you, challenge you, motivate you to be a better leader. Every time Mike will add value to your life, each episode will be full of leadership nuggets for all leaders, no matter what your profession is. Thanks, Mike, for investing in leaders. Thank you, Brad, for listening in, and thanks to each of you for listening in. Well, today we get to sit down with a leader that I have literally wanted to have on since we started in 2017. His name is Mark Miller. Mark is the Vice President of High Performance Leadership for Chick-fil-A, and he's helped them architect their leadership development process, not only for Chick-fil-A, but in the process, he's written eight books that have sold over a million copies translated in 25 different languages, and has become a leadership expert all around the globe. But I believe he saved his best work for this work. Tomorrow, on Tuesday of this week, he comes out with his brand new book, Smart Leadership. We've got links in the show notes so you can go order. And I want to tell you, this book is absolute treasure. Mark talks about the four choices that every leader's got to make if they're going to be a great leader, and they are so good. And this podcast is so rich with information. So I don't know where you're watching or listening from today. I don't know what you have going on, but I hope you'll create a little space on your table, pull out a notebook, pull out a pad, Begin to find something to write with because you're going to want to take good notes. So I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Mark Miller. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. It's my pleasure. Well, you have had a front row seat for more than 40 years at Chick-fil-A. You were employee number 16? That is correct. At the company. What's it been like to watch this, probably in a trailer when you started? You know, your your corporate offices were in a trailer. Those are my old haunting ground, hunting grounds down there. In a trailer to what that company is today. What's that been like as a person on the ride of Chick-fil-A? Well, it has been an amazing ride. We had about 75 restaurants um, in 1978. I was uh, a teenager and uh, was working in the warehouse at the corporate office. And I had worked in a restaurant prior to that, a Chick-fil-A restaurant, and I was awful. I was so bad. (laughs) True story. I was so bad. I actually knew I was going to be fired, or at least that was my my fear. So I quit because I thought it would look better on my resume to have quit than to have been fired. Now, this was career planning in a 19-year-old mind, Fantastic. And so I thought, well, I can't do what they do in the restaurant. Maybe I can work at their corporate office. Now, that's, of course, absurd and no reflection on the other professionals at the corporate headquarters. 
but it made sense to me as a kid. So I went into the office one day, you know, the headquarters and uh, told the receptionist, I wanted a job working in their warehouse because I knew they had a warehouse. And so she told me to have a seat. And just a few minutes later, Truett Kathy came out, took me into his office to conduct the interview. And that doesn't make sense at a lot of levels until you factor in, I was going to be the 16th employee. So how many business owners who only have 15 employees, they're doing the interviewing, right? That's right. That's right. So, so Truett interviewed me and I tell folks it was God's grace and his lack of discernment. He gave me that job in the warehouse and that was 43 years That's ago. Amazing. Uh, and this year in 2021, we crossed 17 billion in sales. Mm. So it has come, uh, it has come a long way and it has been an amazing ride. How did you, so you look back now in the rear view mirror and you see God's hand getting you that opportunity, going that true it interviewed you, all the things that were in play there. Did you ever dream you would be doing, I mean, you're known as the leadership guy. That's your role. That's what you're, 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 you put your tools in. Did you ever dream you would be doing leadership for a living? No, I, re I really didn't. Uh, I've just been trying to live into my role my entire career uh, to keep learning, keep growing. And I serve at the pleasure of the organization. And I have, I've had, I should count someday. I haven't counted. I probably had 10 different roles in 43 years and three or four of them, I think would be legitimate career changes. You know, when I left the warehouse, I started corporate communications, which makes no sense. Right. Uh, I was going to school at night down at Georgia state. And so I changed my major to communications because I'm now trying to run corporate communications. Now that wasn't that big a deal back then. Right. We still just had 20, yeah. 25 people on staff, but nonetheless, that was different than working in the warehouse. And I have several of those examples and I've just tried to keep learning, keep growing, keep adding value. And, um, uh, one thing's led to another. And here we are. I spend a lot of time working on leadership. So you, you also have a faith and you also have a walk with Christ. What role has that played in helping you become who you are today? As you look at God's hand in all of this, what would you say to that? Well, I think, I think God prepares us for the future. I don't, I don't think he wastes anything on us. And I think every opportunity has been preparatory for what's next. Um, and I'm excited about what's next. I mean, many in your audience will know that Moses was prepared for 80 years for a 40 year ministry. So I'm still in preparation mode. Can't see, I can't wait to see what I'm going to get to do next. So I'm trying to learn all I can, trying to add all the value I can. And, um, See what happens. That's a fantastic way to look at that. And that and it puts because we use a little phrase on here all the time. God never wastes our time and he never wastes our experiences. So nothing we've gone through from the warehouse to having to quit because you could you couldn't do the front lines. None of it's wasted, right? None of it, none of it's wasted. And here you are, you've written an incredible new book, Smart Leadership. It is so good. And it's more than just your musings of 40 years of leadership. Tell everybody a little bit about how this book came about, because all of your other books, most of them have probably read one of your books that you've written before, more fable oriented. But this one's different. Tell them a little bit about how this book came about, Mark. OK, I'll give I'll give you a couple of pieces. And if there's something you want to explore in more detail, we certainly can. Uh, the way we've approached writing for two decades now is we try to discern what are the current and near-term needs mm -hmm. of leaders. Good. And if we can get ahead, we think that's even better. I'll give you one example. We began talking about building leadership teams in our organization before there were really any leadership teams. So we're at that point, we're trying to, to strategically guide the organization. This may be something for you to consider in the future. Other times when we get in a talent crisis, we do, uh, we think was the first ever research in the history of the world on what attracts top talent. Mm. And that became a book called talent magnet. So that wasn't yep. ahead of the curve. That was, we got a problem. Let's go to work on it. Yep. So all of the books uh, have been the best we've been able to discern needs based. 
And as you mentioned, for 20 years, I've been writing fables. And there were a whole lot of reasons behind that, not the least of which is my very first book, I partnered with Ken Blanchard of the One Minute Manager fame. Uh, he's the one that got me into this. I blame him because we had been doing some work on leadership development at Chick-fil-A. I shared it with Ken. He was a friend of mine. Um, and I wanted to get his perspective on the work we had done just a validation of sorts. And he said, this has got to be a book. That was the first thing out of his mouth. Mm, and I mm. said, Ken, everything looks like a book to you, which is why you've sold 70 million books or whatever it is. Yep. And, and he, he persisted. And we did that first book called the secret 20 years ago about Chick-fil-A's point of view of leadership is, is yep. what that book is really about. But, um, so that was the reason I started with fables <clears throat> and we continued with fables. And then I had a couple of publishers, my former publisher and my new publisher that said, it's time for you to write a real book. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you need to do a traditional business book, traditional leadership book. So honestly, I viewed it as an experiment, but let me tell you why I was excited about it. I mean, I knew I would be out of, out of my depth and I'd, I'd have to stretch and learn and grow, which was exciting. But what, what excited me the most was in the fables, they wouldn't let me include a lot of tactics. Mm. And in one of my earlier books, the publisher made me take 75% of the content out. They said, you don't put tactics in a fable. You, you'll destroy the story. It's a mm. story. They said, you're not writing a field guide. So we started writing field guides to accompany the fables. The yep. only problem with that is 95% of the people that read the book don't buy the field guide. That's right. So all these years, I've had this angst that the questions leaders have about my previous books, it's usually yes, but how? Yep. Yes, but how? And so when they said I could do a traditional book, I said, well, does that mean I can put in tactics? And they said, all you want. So uh, about at least eight chapters are fully devoted to applying the concepts that we've introduced in the book. And so I think that's why we've gotten some early good feedback. I think there's been a pent up, I think there is a pent up need from leaders to say, how do I do this? Not yes. what should I do? I think you may find the same, same thing on Sunday morning in a lot of churches where you hear a message and then the congregation leaves going, yes, but how? Well, I so, think there are a lot of leaders saying, I want to be a better leader. Yes, but how? And so it was a fun project. I'll be anxious to see what the world thinks. I'm glad you like the book. Uh, it turned out to be a lot of fun. Well, it, it is fantastic. And I love the yes, but how I remember sitting at Liberty University as a student and Rick Warren there and Rick was a young guy back at that time teaching and he said you ought to write by every thing you teach YBH. Yes, but how because that's what people in the audience want to hear. He's right. I mean, and so should never give a point about something. You should tell them the action of what to go do with it. And you did such a great job. And we talked a little bit before we went on air. It's so universal. What you talked about is so universal. So I want to grab a statement. I want to unpack it a little bit. And this is right out of the shoot in the book. Your choices determine your impact. This is sort of the baseline that drives your book. Yes. Why is this? We're so we're we're good about telling teenagers, you know, your choices determine your future, which they do. But for a leader, your choices determine your impact. Talk to me a little bit about that. OK, well, I'll answer that. And it'll be the last part to your previous question of how we got here. I got I got stuck on. We went from a fable to a traditional leadership book. But the problem we thought we were trying to solve, because I said these are all needs based books, is this was three, four years ago when we started, you know, working on this project. We saw so many leaders struggling. Mm. We just saw, and, and you can argue leaders have always struggled. And you might argue that they've struggled even more the last 24 months. Okay, yeah, sure. But, but it got our attention when we're trying to figure out how can we add value, how can we serve leaders literally around the world. Uh, you know, some of our books are in more than 20 languages now. So that's fantastic. So what, what is a, a real and present felt need? And, and again, parenthetically, I would say that's gotten worse since we started this project. We said leaders are struggling. Hmm. And so we first started to try to figure out why are they struggling? And I won't dwell on this because everybody knows it, but we call it quicksand. 
it's busyness, it's distraction, it's competing priorities, it's resource scarcity, um, it, it's any number of things. And then, by the way, some leaders go, well, yeah, I'm struggling, but it's not that. Well, I say, what's holding you back? What's impeding you? What's limiting your impact? Well, then that list gets longer. And for some people, it includes success mm-hmm. or fatigue or fear or aimlessness. Whatever that toxic mix is, that's your quicksand. Yep. And we saw so many leaders in quicksand. So now back to your question. But we also found some leaders who didn't seem to be struggling with it. And we said, let's study them. Mm. But how do some leaders stay above the fray? Now, from time to time, we're all going to step in it. Yep. But there are leaders, and you know leaders, we all know somebody, they don't, they don't get stuck, right? They don't get mired in, yep. the, in the mess that so many leaders are dealing with. So we started trying to focus on that. And what we boiled it down to is not that they're better leaders necessarily. This this book is not going to teach anybody how to lead. I've written books on that. This is for leaders who need to improve their effectiveness. That's good. If you don't know how to lead, this book can't. This is not the book to teach you how to lead. But it's the book if you're a leader to tell you how to be more effective. And what we discerned after all of this energy and effort, I had a research team. I guess at one point there were eight or ten folks on it, uh, from Stanford to Boston and everywhere in between. Um, we did hundreds of interviews with leaders, a lot of desk research, and what we decided was these leaders that get to higher ground, they make different choices. Mm. They make mm. different choices. They don't necessarily cast vision better. They don't necessarily build teams better. They don't necessarily have more passion or a better heart. They make different choices. And so that became the through line of the book. We yeah. said, okay, now we've got to figure out which choices because all choices are not created equal. And we all know that they're just not. Some are very trivial and some are extremely significant. Yep. And you, and you said, you mentioned effectiveness here a second ago, you know, Drucker says effectiveness can be learned, but then Drucker said effectiveness must be learned. So knowing that there's leaders that do it better than us, it's not a matter of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I need to get better at it. If you're a leader, you have to learn to get better at it. Why is that true? Whether you're a college baseball coach or a high school principal or the owner of a fortune 500 company. Why is that true? Because leaders are the indispensable lever to change the world. Oh, that's good. And I was challenged just this week. Somebody said, are you saying leaders are better? I said, no, but they've got a unique role. And if they're not, if they're not leading, it doesn't happen. No team, no department and no organization has ever drifted to greatness. That's right. They are led there. They are led there. Again, doesn't mean the leader's smarter, doesn't mean they're faster, but it means they have a unique role that they have embraced. And they're, and they're going to help create the future. I mean, if they're doing their job. So when Drucker says it has, you, you must learn effectiveness, I think what he's saying is if you want to earn your wage, if you want to yeah. be able to look yourself in the mirror, it, it must be learned because if you don't learn it, you actually can't do your job well. And who wants to go through life knowing that you're mediocre at what you do? Yeah. I, I, I would hope no one would, would suffer that fate. You know, what you outlined before you even get into the choices is the quicksand. What a great analogy. I was telling somebody yesterday, I said, in fact, I was talking about it in the the depths of even trying to find out what God wants us to do. We find the quick, uh, it's amazing. We know what we should do on Sunday morning, but we get in quicksand by the time we get to our car. I mean, we all do. I do. You do. We all do. Quicksand's faced by everybody. How have you leading leaders stayed out of the quicksand? Because you, nobody looks to you as an authority on leadership if they see you drowning in the sand and mired in the sand, how have you stayed above it with social media and pers- your, your personal life's not perfect? Nobody's is. How have you learned to stay above that, Mark? Well, it's a battle. I mean, I want every leader hearing this to know this is not a, a silver bullet. This is not an easy 
checklist. I mean, we, we've said there are four simple choices, but there are four simple choices you have to make over and over and over and over and over and over, and over every day. It's, it's like, so I think the way you stay out of it is you battle it, mm, mm. but it begins with the decision to battle it. Cause see, when somebody gets in quicksand, there are only three options. And I don't, I don't know if anybody's ever thought about this. We obviously gave it some thought. The first option, and unfortunately, it's the one I see most leaders taking, is that they learn to swim in quicksand. That's right. Because remember, they're leaders, and they know the strokes, they know the technique, they've been trained, they're experienced, they know what to do, so they just kind of keep doing it. Now, they know consciously or subconsciously that this is really hard, and we're not getting a lot of traction, We're, we're not making a lot of progress but I'm a leader, doggone it. And when the tough gets, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So I'm going to keep swimming. Yep. Well, it's exhausting. It's not sustainable. You're never going to do your best work. I mean, nobody's ever won a gold medal swimming in quicksand, but that's, that's right. what a lot of leaders do. The second option is to quit, to give up, to die. Now, not physically die, hopefully, uh, but your, your hopes, your dreams, your aspiration can be extinguished in the quicksand. And I think that's a piece of this um, great resignation that we're seeing right now. Uh, Leaders just saying it's just too hard. It's just too hard. And I'm not saying it's not hard, but I'm saying you got a third option, which is to escape the quicksand. Mm -hmm. And we think these choices are the stepping stones out of the quicksand. Because originally, I told you, we, we were wrong. We thought the villain was the quicksand. Yep. We're the villain because it's our lack of strategic and thoughtful action to extricate ourselves that keeps us trapped. So it's, it's on us. It, your choices really do determine your impact. Mm. That is gold. And everybody who's been in leadership has lived in one of those areas. I mean, everybody, I mean, it, and I think you nailed it earlier. Everybody's going to face it. The question is how long do you stay there? Do you, do you learn, do you just get so adept at swimming? Can a leader survive in an organization for 10 or 15 years swimming? What would you say? I think Maybe. I mean, it depends on how deep and how thick um, that quicksand is because it it can be so debilitating. Yeah. And I believe I'm not a psychologist and I have to remind myself of that uh, often, but I think we're talking, I think it's probably the number one cause of burnout. I agree. With it's you. the quicksand. Because everything is so hard and it weighs on you mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually, and it just wears leaders down. And um, can you do it for 10 or 15 years? Maybe, but I hope leaders won't. I, I would hope if that's the case, they would either go somewhere else where the quicksand is not as much of a problem, although they may be part of the problem. Yep. You know, some of it can be environmental. Some of it can be circumstantial. The pandemic is clearly circumstantial yep. and, and, and environmental. Um, so you can't change jobs and avoid that. But um, I would hope they would either change roles, change jobs, or actually get out of the quicksand. Yeah. Uh, and I know leaders who have changed roles within their own company to get a role with less quicksand. Mm. Again, I think, I, I don't know that this is empirically true, but you could argue that the, the more responsibility you have, the greater likelihood that you're going to encounter quicksand. Yeah. And so I actually know, have known leaders that would step back as their strategy for dealing with the quicksand because they, they realized they couldn't do it indefinitely. They, or, they, just, know, they just wanted to simplify they just learned they to, to make, yeah, they look, I remember I worked with a uh, NFL head coach a few years ago and he was a number of years with one organization. He went back and he was a coordinator of another organization. And I said, we were at, we were at their fall training camp and I said, do you miss it? And he looked across at the head coach surrounded by about 30 reporters. And he said, I don't miss that 
because he said, what so, I love is coaching and what you don't do as a head coach is coach. You, you right. lead, so you lead he, the coaches, but you don't hands on coach. And so I think he was simplifying. I think he was going that this may be better for me. So these smart choices, I want to spend a little bit. We'll, we'll fly over them. Your book will come out right after this podcast releases. So I mean like a day or two after, so it's going to work out really well. So I want to hit these four choices, confront reality. A leader has to be able to confront reality. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. So tell me, what is it about confronting reality that's such a necessity for a leader to make smart choices? They can't do the ultimate things if they don't begin here. Right, right. Well, if if you'll confront reality, it enables you to stay grounded in truth mm. and lead from a position of strength. You th- you th- truth may be the leader's greatest ally reality if if you don't know where you are I, i've often used the example if if you had a map and you were lost and you were trying to navigate but you didn't know where you were on the map yeah. how would you navigate to your destination it's like if if you don't know where you are it's, it's, it's hard. It's, I would say it's impossible to be strategic. It's impossible uh, to be purposeful. Now, if you're just trying to go through the motions, then that's a whole different story. But I believe that leaders are supposed to be trying to move towards a preferred future and take people there. So um, they're just, they're just so many impediments. And I've talked to leaders. I've talked to a lot of leaders and I generally frame it like this to say, do you know leaders that aren't willing to confront reality? Because I don't want to put anybody on the spot. And every leader I've ever asked said, well, of course I do. Of course, I know leaders that don't want to confront reality. And my follow up question is, why do you think that is? And they give me a long, 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 long list. And I've included many of those in the book and fear and complacency and on and on and on and on and on. Um, pride. I mean, you just, it's not a pretty list, but when leaders confront reality, they are positioned to lead. Well, Mm. you're never positioned to lead. Well, if you don't know what is real. Yeah. What does it say to the team that's following you as if you pretend that reality doesn't exist. So let's take somebody that's saying, I just want to be a positive leader. I want to be, I want to be, you know, the glass is half full. I want to be, things are going to be great. And you, you just say, I, I just don't want to, I'm going to ignore that. What's it say to the team around you? If you do. I think you can lose credibility really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think there's an inherent inconsistency, if if not stated, implied about standards and about accountability. Um, I I just think it's it's awful. Even let's take that a half a step further. We tell leaders that you need to know your values, and you need to share your values, and you need to live your values. And by the way, if you're not willing to live your values, Keep your mouth shut because mm. you'll destroy your credibility if you say one thing and do another. Because sure. people are trying to figure out, are the leaders that that are part of their organization or their team or whoever, whatever context you're in, they want to know, are these men and women trustworthy? Mm. I mean, they they want to know, do you care about me as a person? For sure. But they also want to know, are you trustworthy? Yep. Are you trustworthy? Well, is a person trustworthy if, if their words and deeds are consistently out of sync? Um, I, I think you're just not a very good leader if you, if you can't do the hard stuff as well as the encouraging stuff. Who, who is somebody that's modeled this well? Who is somebody that, is you, if you, that you maybe have worked with or you've watched from as a spectator, somebody that you say, man, they did this so well. Anybody stand out to you? Um, goodness gracious. That's a wonderful question. I would say, uh, Jimmy Collins, the former president of Chick-fil-A, 
was was gifted um, at confronting reality, at telling you the truth. Mm-hmm. He would encourage you, but he would challenge you. He would hold you accountable. Um, and you kind of knew where he stood on, on everything. And, and he modeled a level of consistency. Now, let me quickly say, he didn't treat everyone the same. I don't think the best leaders treat everyone the same. I think they, they treat people the way that person needs to be treated. There's typically more of a managerial mindset that says we should treat everybody the same. That you're not going to hear leaders saying that. Leaders go, hey, I know what motivates you is different than what motivates you, which is different than what motivates you. My son had a coach a few years ago, and uh, his his preferred way of communication was screaming at the top of his lungs to every player, every practice, and every game. And he came to me and he said, have you got any advice for me? I said, well, that's probably a loaded question. <laughs> uh, have you noticed how the different players react when you holler and scream, which was all the time? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, there are a couple of them that really respond to that. And there are a whole bunch of other ones that don't. He said, that's why I keep hollering and screaming at him. I said, yeah, he's trying to treat everybody the same. Yep. It's like, yeah, I don't, uh, the best leaders don't treat everybody the same. So Jimmy was consistent, that's good. but, but he, he tried to figure out what, what's it going to take to encourage and equip and inspire and motivate individuals as individuals. You know, in, in for people now that know Chick-fil-A, they look at it and go, well, gosh, it's always been wonderful. I mean, it's always been, I mean, they've been on this incline, soaring, meteoric rise, but I'm sure there were some tough realities back in the early days when y'all began the expansion and going from malls to standalone stores. What were some of the realities y'all had to confront as an organization early on that got them where they are today? Well, let me let me start by saying we are working really, really, really hard to get better every day. So mm-hmm. we're we're thankful when the indicators go up. They don't always go up, but we're trying. I mean, we, yep. we feel it's a stewardship opportunity. Like let's let's try to make this thing better. Let's try to leave it better than we found it. Um, but to your question specifically, I remember in the late 80s, we had a cleanliness problem. And and we didn't know it. I mean, I say we didn't know it. We didn't understand the magnitude of it until we did some mystery shops. It was the first time we'd ever done mystery shops. We paid people to go into our restaurants. And we gave them some questions and said, answer these questions and mail this into us. And so we had these mystery shops and they said, your, your stores are dirty. And it wasn't like, it's like, whoa. So we had to go to work on that. But, mm. but we, we, we didn't have that perspective. Now, shame on us, but you know, the stores were even back then scattered in 30 states and we had a small staff. But when we sent these customers out, these shoppers, they said, you got to work on your cleanliness. And and we said, "Okay, good. And then, by the way, we found that some of it was not dirty. It was clutter, which was Mm. a design issue. So we actually said some of these restaurants we had been going in and saying, well, it looks clean to me, but there were boxes and packaging and other things that were stored in plain view and customers were not associating that with cleanliness. So we just got on it. We worked on it and our stores have a pretty good reputation these days for being clean. Um, But that was one of those early things. It was kind of a wake up call. It was in the late eighties and uh, it was like, Hey, we got to work on our restaurants. Um, We got to, we got to make them cleaner. You know, it's funny. It's funny you say that. So I, I graduated Fett County High School in 1987, went to Lynchburg, Virginia for college in, in the fall of 97 or in the fall of 87, 1987. And I remember going to the local restaurant there in Lynchburg and it wasn't clean. And growing up in Union City at Shannon Mall and and Hateville and and we didn't have one in Dwarf and Fayetteville at the time, but Dwarf House and Riverdale, they were always clean because all of y'all were always visiting the stores. But to get away from it, I remember calling a mutual friend of ours, uh, Cleve Kaiser, and going, hey, the store up here is filthy. I'll, I'll never forget. It's one of the first things I ever said to him. But it was. And I wasn't used to that because that's a standard y'all had set. Right. But, but what I love about that, Mark, is every organization has a reality they have to confront. And that right. was that season. And that's been replicated probably 50 other times in a year of different topics that come up. 
that was smart choice number one. Smart choice number two, I want to unpack a little bit. You've got to, every leader's got to grow their capacity. They've got to be willing to grow and expand. Why does a leader have to continually, and you said it about Chick-fil-A a second ago, they have to continually be getting better. Why is that so imperative to be a smart leader? Well, the whole capacity question uh, is, is multifaceted. Uh, it has some very uh, pragmatic components, things such as your time mm. and your calendar. Uh, I had a young leader walk into my office years ago and, and he said, hey, you guys talk about senior leadership. Do you ever talk about people who've run out of capacity? And I said, rarely. He said, well, that surprises me. I said, why? He said, well, I think you'd talk about those people. I said, we tend to talk about people who are growing their capacity mm. because they can take on more responsibility. They can add more value. They can train, educate, and develop others. They can mentor people. They can help us think about the future. And so, so one of the more pedestrian sides of this is, what about your calendar? What's on your calendar that doesn't need to be on your calendar? It's never your job as a leader to do your team's job. Mm. And, and we find a lot of leaders, that's part of their quicksand, is they don't have role clarity or they don't have the discipline to let their team do their job. Uh, another piece of it that some people don't like to, to think about is this idea of energy. Mm. I know men and women that know how to lead and they really don't have enough energy to do it. So the whole idea of, personal energy management, and nobody wants to think about this, but, but we need to think about it, about diet and exercise and, and how much water you, do you drink and what kind of recreation do you have in your life and do you have some life-giving relationships? That, that's, that's capacity as well because it does no good to see what needs to be done and not have the energy to actually go do it. And then there's one more way that I think leaders can grow their capacity and it, for some leaders, it's going to be the most controversial and confounding thing in the whole book. Because remember, the premise is a lot of these leaders, they're trying to stay alive. Yep. They're in quicksand, right? The best leaders build margin into their life. And they have for 2,000 years. The best leaders build margin in their life. And people say that is absurd and that is nonsensical. I said, well, hold on just a second. Let's, let's, let's stop for a minute because it's neither of those things. It feels like it mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're, you're dying. But here's what we're talking about when we say margin. Somebody said, well, I don't have time for a vacation. I said, well, that's a separate issue. I'm not even saying vacation is not margin. I'm talking about margin as a leadership discipline. And so I would ask the leader this, when do you have time, schedule time, consistent time to reflect, to assess, to think, to create, and to plan? If you can't do those things, you cannot lead. Hmm. You cannot lead. And part of what you need to be reflecting, assessing, thinking, and creating and planning about is how do you get out of the quicksand? That's right. One reason you can't get out is you can't create a plan to get out. And so I'm challenging leaders. If you can find two hours next week and block it as in a meeting with you, an appointment. So when people call and want that time, you say, I'm sorry, I'm already booked. Two hours. Now, is there a magic number? No. And it, you, you might could do with an hour and you might need two days. But I'm saying if you've not experimented with margin, find two hours, reflect, assess, think, create, and plan. And you get to pick your topic. You get to pick your topic and dedicate some time. And I think it'll revolutionize your leadership. I actually believe that your time alone is the most valuable time you have as a leader. Yep. And a lot of leaders have zero time alone. Well, that explains a lot. Like, when do you reflect? When do you assess? When do you think? And I'm not talking about driving to work or in the shower, like deep 
thought. Yep. When do you create and when do you plan? Nobody else is doing that. If the leader's not doing that, nobody else is doing that. We're addicted to activity. Margin is a cry for sobriety. And great leaders throughout history, go all the way back to the first century, you'll see that Jesus took time alone, as was his habit, as was his routine. And there have been studies after study after study, and it just pops up. It just pops up. Howard Gardner did work out of Harvard a few years ago, and he looked at the world's great historical figures, about six or eight or ten of them. And guess what? He called it a rhythm of life. Mm, mm. They all had seasons of, of immersion and seasons when they would pull away. And, and we need that. We need that. So I would say, try that as an experiment. Try two hours. Last thought on this, <clears throat> people say they're too busy. <clears throat> I would say the more responsibility you have, the bigger your dreams, the bigger your goals, the bigger your aspirations, the more time you need to set aside for margin. If you're doing a small thing, you probably don't need much margin. You know, you might actually be able to figure out what you need to figure out in the shower if you're not doing much. But if you're trying to change the world, you're going to have to devote some time, some deep thinking, significant time. Would you be who you are today if you had not intentionally carved out that time? Do you think you could lead leaders because you're not leading you're not leading followers you're leading leaders could you do it if you hadn't have done that i don't i don't think any leader can can approach their potential without margin and thankfully i had a leader who impressed this upon me 30 35 40 years ago Uh, and I i talk about this in the book just a quick word um i i was encouraged to take a day a month to go to the library And I said, why would I do that? And the story basically was, well, how did things work out last month? I said, well, pretty good. It's like, like you planned? Well, not exactly. Well, what are you going to do different? Well, I'm not sure. So that's why you need to go to the library. Don't go there to do email. Don't go there to take a nap. Go there to think about what's happened What do you want to happen? What are the gaps and what are your strategies? Mm. And this was 30, 35 years ago. I had a leader coaching me. You need at least a day a month. That's incredible. That is incredible. You know, and I I remember we brought in Andy Stanley to do a staff meeting one time at North star. And one of the first thing he talked about is getting margin in your life to dream and plan. And, And you look at guys like Andy, whose schedule could be whatever, but he is so intentional about it. And that's why he's able to do everybody has the equal amount of time, but everybody uses it so differently and growing capacity is such a big deal. It's a discipline. It's a discipline. And I think you need to experiment. Uh, There are any number of ways to do it. I talk about some different options in the book, but my encouragement for your listeners is just try and experiment, block a two hour meeting with yourself. That's good. And don't do email. Don't do email. Do that some other time. That's and, fantastic. And I think it could revolutionize your leadership. You know, and, and what I love that is when you create that margin, it does do what smart choice number three, it fuels your curiosity. It makes you more curious because you have time to think, you know, you, you gave the quote in the book, fuel curiosity to maintain relevance and vitality in a changing world. Why is being curious such a necessity to growth and such a in such a universal trait of great basketball coaches that I want you to talk about great CEOs what is it about curiosity that seems to find itself in all of those great leaders okay so um figure out where to start here um I've often wondered and and been asked from time to time is there a leadership fountain of youth? Mm. And my answer was always, I hope so. And I'm going to keep looking for it, right? (laughs) I felt like Ponce de Leon looking for the the fountain of youth. And we found it. It's curiosity. Mm. So for the leader who wants to add value throughout their lifetime, this is the only path. This is the only path. Uh, 
again, I was so challenged by some work that I named Larry Miller did about 30 years ago. I referenced this in the book as well. He wanted to study the rise and fall of organizations. And he took Toynbee's work and looked at the rise and fall of 21 civilizations. And he realized that they map really closely together. And one of the signs of demise is when leaders begin using the answers from yesterday to today's questions. Well, why would you use yesterday's answer to today's questions? Maybe because you don't have a better answer and you're not open to the possibilities. So I think it's the fountain of youth. Uh, I, and why, why does it show up in all those disciplines? I think there are a couple of reasons. It's because great leadership knows no disciplinary boundary. Mm. A great leader in a church, or a great leader in a basketball team, a great leader in government, a great leader in a school, a great leader in your family, they exhibit the same traits, the same characteristics. They, leadership is leadership, regardless right. of the domain. So I think that's one reason it shows up in a lot of places. And the other reason is it's in all of us. It's in all of us. It, it's a gift, I would argue, to be stewarded. But what has happened in many people's lives, I would say the majority of people, it's not been stewarded, it's been squashed. Yep. Yep. And and not necessarily of our own fault. Right. There, there are a lot of things in the world conspiring against curiosity and creativity. It's like it's it's messy and it's disruptive and don't ask why and just follow the rules and stay within the lines. And um, so the world conspires against folks in, in this whole realm of curiosity. But it shows up because it is it is a legitimate game changer for leaders. You've met some of the greatest leaders in the world. Who was the most curious leader that you've ever met that everyone would look at and go, that's who everybody goes to for all the answers. And yet, you know them behind the behind the curtain and you see their curiosity at work. Who is that and why do you feel that way? Well, you may not like my answer. I see it in all the great leaders. I see it in all of them. I mean, I had dinner with John Maxwell last night. He's been one of my mentors for decades, and he's going to be speaking at our Chick-fil-A event in a few weeks. And so we met with him and several of our local Chick-fil-A operators to to help prepare for that event. I don't know anybody more curious than John. Um, You know, he, uh, he tells the story that, and I, I may not get this exactly right, so he'll he'll have to correct me later. But I think he was 17. He may have been 18 when he decided he was going to learn something every day and make a note of it. He used to have a paper filing system. And he said he's going to learn something and find something or a quote or a story or an illustration or an idea or a concept every day and put it in a file. Well, John's in his 70s now. I've been with John all over the world in all kinds of settings, and he's going to be taking notes. i tell you another one is Howard Hendricks from Dallas mm-hmm. Theological mm-hmm. Seminary. He was one of my mentors for many years. For those that don't know Howard, he's passed away, but he taught at DTS for over 60 years. Mm-hmm. And I had the unspeakable privilege on several occasions to teach for him in his class. And it wasn't like substitute teaching, which was kind of weird because he was there. Wow. And he sat on the front row. Oh, And in 45 minutes, he would take 30 or 40 pages of notes. And this is a man who at the time had been teaching for 65 years, Mm. you know, or 55 years, whatever it was. And so I could just go leader by leader by leader by leader. If they're a great leader, they are curious. Mm. That may manifest itself differently. It may show up differently based on learning styles or temperament or personal preferences. But I, I challenge your leaders to think about someone they look up to as a great leader. And, and see if they're not uh, curious. That's so good. That is so good. I guarantee you they are. They have to be because you can't last in this society with things changing so fast. Right. You right. can't last. You can't make it. I mentioned the changing world. I mean, the rate of change is accelerating. And yeah. leaders, we have got to be at the at the forefront of that. Um, it, it's just, it's an indispensable part of, of high level, smart leadership is, is curiosity. 
All right, so I know you need to move on, but last, I want to give one more tactical thing because yeah. we talked about why it's so important. And again, this is going to feel pretty pedestrian, but I think it's it's a powerful idea. Ask, don't tell. That's good. Whenever possible. I'm not saying you can never tell anybody what to do. Of course you can. We're leaders. You have to do that from time to time. But my experience tells me is that we spend far too much time telling and not enough time asking. Because when we ask, not only do we get smarter, the people we're asking the question of get smarter. Even if their answer is they don't know, they just learn something. That's right. And then you can say, well, where might you find that answer? Or what do you think the benefits would be if we knew that answer? Or what do you think our next steps ought to be? All of a sudden, they're having to learn. They're having to grow. They're having to get smarter. At the end of the day, you, you may have to tell somebody something. Uh, Jim Collins, the good to great, uh, built to last, he spoke at one of our events, has done that a couple of times. And in one of those meetings, he challenged everybody to double their statement to question ratio or their question to statement ratio. And so we're all sitting there processing that. And while we're still thinking about it, he said, and then double it again. Mm, mm. He said, you got to ask more questions. Everybody wins. And by the way, it demonstrates a humility that people will appreciate. So that's a very tactical way that you can fuel your curiosity. And I would encourage people to identify some of your favorite questions uh, and be ready to use them like arrows in your quiver. There are almost 600 questions in smart leadership. So if you need a head start, there are a few in there for you. Really good. And you even go back to the life of Christ and his leadership. That was how he led. He asked questions, would garner the answer, and then he would tell a story. But he led, he led with questions. He always led by asking a question, and it's a lost art. It really is a lost art. It's real. Yeah. That was one of the, that is one of the most practical pieces of the book was the questions and the way you help others dive into that. Because if we're going to last and we're going to be a, be a leader that lasts, we have to remain curious. We can't, we, nobody ever arrives. Your final thing, and you, you said this is the one that brings all these things together, is a leader create a smart leader creates change. And they, know, choose, they choose they, to create change. There you go. Talk to me about that. Why do they choose to do that? What were you going to say about Drucker? I want to know. I, 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 I know your, your quote in there was the best way to predict the future is to invent it. I mean, that's, right. and that's such a classic Drucker quote. Why do they choose? to create change because they've got a compelling picture of the future. They, they've got a vision. They, they've got a purpose. They've got a cause. They've got a calling. It is, it compels them to create change, but there are a lot of obstacles and there are a lot of barriers and some of the same uh, culprits that we talked about earlier and, and fear and fatigue and aimlessness and success and all those things can keep us from pulling the trigger. But it is so tragic to me when I see leaders, let's even give them the benefit of the doubt and say they've made those first three choices and they know what to do and they don't pull the trigger. Mm, mm. They don't do it. It's like, well, game over, right? I mean, your, your influence will, You've given in to the quicksand because if you don't, if you don't create change, one, you're not doing your job. Some people, people, some leaders act like change is an inconvenience. It's like change is your job. Change is your job. It's like you're not supposed to control. That's a managerial mindset. And by the way, we need managerial mindset, yep, but not right. as the senior leader, right? The leader begins moving towards this future creates all kind of chaos the managers come behind and bring stability right. until the leader can create the next round of chaos that takes you to a new place or guess what you don't have any systems you don't have any norms you don't have the controls and the managerial mindset comes and cleans it up and makes it stable and makes it so it's not you know crazy all the time but you need both you just yep. don't need the senior leader with a managerial mindset rather than control we want to create Rather than control, we want to release the, the potential of people and the, and the power of the organization. You don't release while you control. 
And again, that's why there's that dance. And let me, let me say this. I've never met a pure leader or a pure manager. We're all a blend. That's right. That's, that's really fine. good. Yeah. Which is fine. But you need men and women who are out front to play those leadership gifts more than they play those managerial gifts, which again, I'm a big fan of teams. We'll have to talk about teams another time. I think that's one reason teams are so powerful is that you bring those complementary gifts because you will not build an enduring great organization if you're not well-led and well-managed. Again, you just can't, you can't get those confused. You can't manage your way to greatness, but you can lead yourself there. And so leaders have got to pull the trigger. Yeah, because you said in there, you've got to commit to grow. Don't try. You got to commit to grow. And then and then you've got to remember your purpose. Why is why is purpose such a big piece of creating that change? Why is knowing your purpose such a big piece of that? I think it's the fuel. I mm, think it's mm. the energy. I think it's the power source. Now, there are a lot of people that say, I don't, I don't know my purpose. I say, well, I'm. I'm not going to throw rocks at you. And I think it can be a progressive revelation and I think it can change over time. But I said, how much time, energy, and effort have you invested trying to discern your purpose? Mm -hmm. Do you have margin in your life? That's right. If you don't know your purpose, then I would say that'd be a candidate for your first session of margin is to try and figure that out, to reflect, to assess, to think, to create, and to plan. That's that'd be something really good to work on if you don't have that. Mark, this is just this is I mean, I could sit and talk about this for I, I'm sitting there reading the book going, how do I get questions out of this? This is impossible. This is so much good stuff. But I want to close with this. I remember the very first podcast we did and. And, and it was built off. There's a verse over in the New Testament tucked away in the book of Acts. It said, David served his purpose in his generation, and then he fell asleep. Then he was done. What do you think is the purpose that God created Mark Miller for? What drives you to write smart leadership? What drives you to come alongside leaders? What would you say is your purpose? Well, the best I can discern is to encourage and equip leaders to change their world. I mean, we, 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 I've, I'm fearful that too many leaders look at the problems in the world and they take a pass because the world's a wreck. I'm encouraging leaders to, to actually narrow their focus. What's in your world? Mm. What's in mm. your influence? What's in your domain? And, and I want to encourage you and I want to equip you. You can change your world. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. I know while I was trying to take notes as Mark was talking, I could not write fast enough. You know, those four choices, those four smart choices are real. You know, I've been in this leadership game now for, for a minute, and everything Mark shared, I just kept nodding, thinking, this is so true. Nobody likes harsh reality, but you got to face it. Nobody wants to go through those times, but there is no way around it. Mark is spot on. You know, this is one of those books. If you have children that are growing up and entering the leadership space, you want them to read because it's never too early to learn these things. And really, in some ways, it's never too late as we all are seeking to be that leader that God created us to be. So, so good. You know, and as I think back on all the things that Mark shared with us, I think the biggest thing that stood out is we are a summation of the choices we make, whether they're good or bad. My prayer is that we make smart choices that help us be the leaders that God created us to be. Man, thanks so much for listening in. We, we aren't missing a beat. We're rolling out a new podcast again next Monday with another one of my leadership heroes, Dan Ryland. Dan has been the executive pastor at 12 Stone Church. Uh, he's also been the executive pastor, probably the first one in America for John Maxwell. 
we're going to unpack his book, Confident Leader. And we're going to talk about what it takes to have leadership confidence. And it is just a blessing to spend time with Dan Ryland. And I hope you're going to enjoy it as much as I enjoy it. Well, if you've enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll push pause, leave a rating and review, and then take some time and share this episode with a friend. Not so we can get known, but so we can create a better pipeline of spiritual leadership and we can raise the spiritual temperature of our country because we raise the spiritual temperature of its leaders. Thanks again for joining in today. And I pray you go be the leader that God created you to be in the space and place that God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.